primary reasons that we are assured that we shall prevail is because of the incredible work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the book of Acts opens with a dramatic presentation of three symbols that characterize the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the church age. And these, these three symbols are prominent throughout this book, uh, wherever the Spirit is at work. Uh, you remember those symbols? There was a, a mighty rushing wind. There were uh, tongues as of fire. And then there was the, the, the gift of tongues or the speaking in other languages. You know, the, the gift of tongues symbolized the, the proclamation of the gospel in various languages across the earth. And it began on the day of Pentecost when the apostle Peter stood up and he proclaimed Jesus Christ to a group of people from all different nations. And gradually, what we're seeing as we go through this book is the, is the spreading of the word of God. It begins in Jerusalem, but it's going to spread out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Fire symbolized the, the judging and the, and the purifying of the Holy Spirit, the church uh, being purified and keeping God keeping it usable. You know, um, we, see the, we just see the work of the Spirit in the story of Ananias and Sapphira when he judged their hypocrisy and cleansed the church in that way. We saw it last week when we looked at the, the account of Simon Mangus and uh, his, his false faith. And we're going to see it again in this book. And then there was the, the, the mighty rushing wind. And that represents the sovereign working of the Spirit and His right to direct and uh, to do the work that needs to be done in the church. And we're going to see that preeminently in the passage that we have before us today here in Acts chapter 8. But you know, remember Jesus said in John chapter uh, 3 in verse 8, He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the wind is an apt symbol of the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit, and and he goes wherever he wishes, and you can't predict where he's going to go or what he's going to do. And this account in Acts chapter 8 of, of Philip in, in encountering this uh, Ethiopian eunuch is a, a beautiful picture of that. Uh, it opens in verse 25 with Peter and John on their way back from Samaria to Jerusalem. You see in Acts chapter 8 verse 25 it says, So when they had solemnly testified... And spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And the fact that the apostles were evangelizing the Samaritan villages is is significant. See, not only did they approve of the uh, planting of churches among the Samaritans, they enthusiastically participated in it. What had begun with Philip now is being embraced by the entire church. 
So a new stage in Christian missions has already been established. There's the reaching of the uh, the Samaritan people. <clears throat> now, last week we looked at Simon, the magician, who, who, who we're told, it says he believed and he was baptized and he began to follow Philip. But then we learn that the faith that he has is not a saving faith. It's not a real faith. Uh, he had an egotistical view of, of self. He had an external view of salvation. He had an economic view of the Spirit. And he had an evasive view of sin. And Simon, you know, he grieved the consequences of his sin, but he never repented of his sin. See, he, he had a false faith. Now, in contrast... To Simon is the Ethiopian eunuch. And he has the kind of faith that does save. He's a portrait of true saving faith. And all the elements of saving faith are here in his life, either by proclamation or by illustration or by implication. And, and through, though, uh, through his life, we can see five characteristics of true saving faith. And, and you know, when you think about these characteristics, they kind of fall under the category of there, there's, there's a preparing work that the Holy Spirit does. Then there is a, there's a presentation of the gospel. And then there's a personal response. That's the way it always is. God prepares and he presents to us the gospel, and he gives us then the opportunity to respond in faith to what he shows us. Well, first, saving faith begins with the sovereign work of the Spirit. It begins with the sovereign work of the Spirit. The circumstances that led to this eunuch's salvation were sovereignly arranged by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is vitally involved in every aspect of any kind of evangelistic encounter. God is there through His Spirit working in the hearts and minds of people. He, he works not only in the life of the person who's lost, but He works in the life of the person who is the witness. So God prepares both people. And, and He precedes the witness to prepare His prepare the heart of the unbeliever. The, the Holy Spirit's ministry is much like that of, of John the Baptist. You remember, uh, uh, he goes before, crying out in the, in the barren wilderness of heart of the unbeliever, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make way, make ready the way of the Lord. You know, in ancient times, it was common for a herald to precede a monarch and to announce his coming and prepare everything for his visit. And, you know, it's the same today, isn't it? I mean, when uh, President Trump came to Charleston not long ago, you can guarantee that there were all kinds of people involved in preparing for that trip. I mean, there were people who had uh, prepared the place where he was going to speak. Uh, there were people who had made the travel arrangements. There were people that were involved in security. There was a great deal of preparation that would go into to any visit of any president in any time. And you see... 
that's exactly what John the Baptist did for Israel's great king, Jesus, before he came. He prepared the way. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does today for God's great king, Jesus Christ. He goes before and he prepares the heart and the life of the person to receive that witness. And he's the one who who plows the soil of the heart. He's the one who prepares it to receive the seed of the word. And he's the one who convicts us of our sin. He's the one who convicts us of the righteousness of God and therefore of the, of the judgment that is to come because of our unrighteousness. See, apart from his work in our hearts that allows us to see ourselves as sinful and desperately needy, there can be no true saving faith. True saving faith begins with divine preparation. You see, and God had already prepared this Ethiopian to receive that truth. We'll see that uh, in more detail later. But in verse 26, we see the sovereign working of the Spirit in preparing a witness for this man. Look what he says. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now here, the Holy Spirit works through the agency of an angel of the Lord. And, you know, um, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. Think about that. Angels serve believers and those who will become believers. And, you know, I've never seen an angel that I'm aware of, except for the one I married. But that doesn't mean that they haven't been working in my life, right? Because, you know, the, the book of Hebrews also tells us that, uh, that we, we can entertain angels without knowing it. That angels are, in other words, angels are always working all around us, only we're most of the time, we never see them. We're not aware of the fact. But this angel gives Philip an unusual directive. He says, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a a desert road. Now, Gaza was one of the five Philistine cities. And the old Gaza was destroyed in the early early B.C. Uh, And and they had rebuilt the city over by the coast, by the Mediterranean. But the road that went down to Egypt still ran through the ruins of this old city, Gaza, and it was deserted. It was a desert road. And so, the, the, and, and you see Luke's note here that this was a desert road shows how unusual this directive from this angel was because it's a desert road. It's deserted. And there were, there were two roads. And, and this is the one that the, that the angel tells him to take, the one that is deserted. See, this is no mere chance encounter. Apart from the Spirit's orchestration of all of these events, this encounter is not going to take place. 
This is the sovereign working of the Spirit in preparing a person to receive the witness. And do you realize that God, God worked in your life when you came to know Christ? Sovereignly worked in your life? Maybe, maybe he worked through angels. I don't even know. But, you know, he worked through somebody. He prepared somebody in your life and he and he prepared you for that time when you heard about Jesus and when you yielded your heart and surrendered to him. God, it's the sovereign work. True saving faith is it begins with the sovereign work of the Spirit. S- saving faith continues with the submissive will of the servant. See, in verse 27, when he gets this unusual uh, directive, it says, so he got up. And went. Friends, God accomplishes his sovereign work of salvation through human instruments. God uses people. People like you. People like me to speak to other people the gospel and to draw those lives to himself. Uh, There is a prerequisite, however... For being used by God. Second Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, if you're asking the question, you know, why doesn't God use me? It could be you're not usable. You see, if you surrender yourself and you let God cleanse you, God will fill you with his spirit and he will make you a useful instrument in his kingdom. You see, Philip was a, was a sanctified vessel. That he's, he was set apart. His life was set apart so that God could use him in this capacity. Let me ask you, do you really make yourself available to God? Are you really set apart so that God can use you or do you even think about it? Do you just um, uh, hoping that somehow these uh, encounters are just going to be thrust upon you and you'll just be smacked in the face and say, wake up, this is an encounter from God? Or are you aware of it? You see, if you surrender yourself and you set your part, self apart, then you can be used by God in that capacity. And you'll be useful to the master for every good work. And so when he's ordered to leave Samaria to, to go to this desert road, he got up and he went. Just simple obedience. He didn't question God. He didn't argue with God. He just went. In many ways, you see, that command seemed illogical. I mean, why would God... Tell him to leave the thriving work in Samaria where all these people are being saved and and go to this deserted road down toward Gaza. Why would he do that? You see, Philip didn't question God. He just obeyed. Philip had no way of knowing that he was going to be used that day to win a strategic person in God's plan of advancing the kingdom of God in the world. He had no idea. 
You see, he was getting ready to witness to one of the most influential men in North Africa, a man who, who was, would be used of God to open up an entire continent to the gospel. And Philip knew that God had spoken. He said, get up, go, to, go south. And man, that's exactly what he did. He said, he started singing, wherever he leads, I will follow. And friend, let me tell you, you have no way of knowing how God is going to use you if you will obey him. If, you, if your life is, is set apart and open for him, you have no idea how God can use you. It'd probably blow your mind if you knew what God would do in your life. You know, over a hundred years ago, there was a there was a Sunday school teacher in Boston named Edward Kimball, and he began to cultivate a, a a relationship with a with a with a rough, uncultured teen that was coming to his class. And after the, this boy had been coming for a couple of months, he went. Uh, to the store, the shoe store, where this boy was working. He went into the back where he was stacking boxes, and he led that young man to Christ. And that was the beginning of the ministry of Dwight L. Moody, a man whom God used to impact two continents for Christ in the 19th century, North America and and Europe. And this former shoe clerk went to England and he preached the gospel in Cambridge. And there was a man there that day, a young athlete by the name of C.T. Studd. And he was a famous cricket player. Now, cricket to them was like football was to us. He was the star of the Cambridge 11. And he was a man with great charm, uh, uh, ability and wealth and education. His father was the, was a personal friend of the Queen of England and a multi-millionaire. C.T. Studd had it all. Money, education, ability, charm. He had it all. But that day, when he heard Dwight L. Moody preach, God touched his life. And he repented of his sin. He believed on Christ. And... In a short time, he had resigned from the Cambridge 11. He quit cricket altogether. And soon, he was called to be a part of the Cambridge 7, a team of men who eventually went to China and began one of the greatest mission initiatives the world has ever known. And when asked why he left all that he had to become a missionary, he said, quote, If Christ be God and died for me, then there is no sacrifice I can make too great for him. See, Philip had no idea what he was doing that day. He had no clue what God had planned in meeting allow him to encounter this Ethiopian who would soon go into back into North Africa and become a catalyst for the beginning of the gospel spread there in that continent. God brings about saving faith 
through the submissive will of his servants. God works in us, and he'll work in you. Number three, saving faith acts upon the seeking heart of the sinner. In verse 27, it says, And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now here we see that God was already at work in the heart of this man. And that's evident in the fact that he had taken this long, arduous journey to Jerusalem to, to worship. And he's, you see, uh, the, the Bible tells us in, Ro- in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 that there is none who seeks after God. So the fact that this man is, is seeking after God is evidence that the Holy Spirit is already at work in his life, drawing him into uh, an interest. And we don't know how all of this came to be. We don't know where he heard about God. We don't know what kind of interaction we had. All we know is that the Spirit had allowed him to know the one true God. ...of the religion all around him and had put in him a longing to know the one true God. And this man was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Ethiopia at that time was much larger than it is today. It, it, it covered most of North America, or excuse me, North Africa. And, and to the Greeks and to the Romans, that represented the, the extreme ends of the earth in that day. Uh, the Ethiopians believed that their king was an incarnation of the sun god. And because he was deity, all the states, the, the affairs of state, the royal duties were beneath him. Therefore, all the royal duties were given to the queen mother, Candace. Now, Candace is not a proper name. It's a title. It's a hereditary name like Pharaoh or or Caesar or some other uh, official royal title. And she had the responsibility of carrying out all the the, uh, duties of state, and she had all the power. And this man is a... a, uh, He's our treasurer. He's in charge of all the treasury. Uh, in, in, in modern terms, he would have been minister of finance or secretary of treasury. And, but despite all of his power and his prestige, see, there, was a, there was an emptiness in his soul. And he made this long journey from his homeland to Jerusalem searching for the true God. But unfortunately, uh, given the state of, a, of the uh, a, uh, of Judaism at that time, he found nothing but ceremony and cold, empty ritual, and he went away empty. And this man was also, it says, a, a eunuch. That is, he had been emasculated to ensure that there would be no infidelity while serving with the queen mother. And what's interesting also is that as a eunuch, when he got to Jerusalem, he would have been denied access to the temple. He couldn't even go in. And and he would have been limited to the status of what's called a God-fearer. He could go to the synagogue. He could participate in the prayers and the reading of Scripture. 
but he couldn't even become a full proselyte. And see, that makes his seeking heart even more apparent. But there's one other indicator that he has this seeking heart. In verse 28, it says he was, as he, and he, he was returning and, and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. He had a desire to know God, and he knew something that a lot of people don't know today, that God is known through the Scriptures. Friends, if you want to know God Read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit will use the scriptures and make himself real to you. And he had no doubt paid a great price for this scroll. And it was probably very difficult for him as a Gentile to even acquire this scroll. But he has this scroll from from Isaiah 53 and he is reading this. You see, God, God's sovereignty in salvation doesn't negate human responsibility. Yes, God is at work, but this man also is seeking from his standpoint. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, God said, You will seek me and find me when you search with me with all your heart. Now, friend, that, that statement presupposes the working of the Spirit, but it also includes the concept of human responsibility, that we must respond to God's working in our lives. The eunuch is a a classic example of someone who, who lived up to the light that he had, and now God is going to give him a full revelation of Jesus through his submissive servant, Philip. And that brings us to number four. You see, saving faith depends upon the explained wisdom of the Scriptures. It depends upon the explained wisdom of the Scriptures. In verse 30, it says, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? That's immediately apparent that the Holy Spirit was sovereignly working in both of these men's lives. The timing and the coordination are incredibly precise. As Philip is walking along the road that he has been told to take, he sees this caravan of, of this Ethiopian, this, this royal official coming. And then at the right time, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And as he runs up right at the precise moment, he hears this man reading aloud from Isaiah 53, which predicts the coming of the Messiah as a suffering servant. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, well, how can I unless someone guides me? See, he knows He can't understand the scriptures on his own. He he knows that he needs somebody to explain it. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him and explain it to him. Now, all of that is just beyond coincidence. This is the sovereign working of the Spirit. And, And here is a man, you see, from a foreign country, a thousand miles away, who has gone to Jerusalem looking for the true God, who has come away disappointed, empty. He's headed away from Jerusalem down a desert road. He's reading, but he's still searching. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. 
And his heart is full of questions. Uh, He's uncertain. He's uh, unsure. And suddenly the Spirit of God drops an evangelist out of the sky right alongside his, his chariot when he's reading out loud those verses. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, I don't. Can you come up here and explain it to me? Now, that sounds to me like a divine appointment. That sounds to me like the sovereign working of the Spirit through the submissive will of His servant in the seeking heart of a sinner through the spiritual wisdom of the Scriptures. Doesn't it? And this is in verse 32 tells us that the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Let me tell you, there could not have been a more appropriate scripture in the Old Testament, for this man to be reading. He is reading what we know today is Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And, but the problem is, he doesn't have the spiritual wisdom to understand what it means. He's a seeker, but he is lost. And his confusion is understandable because even the religious leaders of the day didn't understand what it meant. They were divided on the interpretation of that passage. Some people said, well, this is, that, that this was speaking, the, the lamb that was led to slaughter was the nation of Israel. Some said that Isaiah was speaking of himself, that he was the one who would be led to slaughter. There was a small minority that said that it applied to the Messiah, but that was almost totally rejected because they said, no, that couldn't happen to the Messiah. He's going to be the royal king who's going to come and overwhelm all of his enemies. You see, this was spiritual, lack of spiritual understanding was common everywhere. It reminds me of what Jesus said in in Luke chapter 24 beginning in verse 25, when he was walking, this was after his resurrection, he was walking on the road to Emmaus, and he said this, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? See, it wasn't either or, it was both. He would suffer, and then he would be the glorious Messiah. He was the Messiah anyway, but, but both. And you see, and then it says in verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, listen, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Friends, it had to be explained to them. True salvation depends upon the explained wisdom of the Scriptures. It has to be put together for us oftentimes. Now, while God's existence and and maybe some of His attributes are readily uh, 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 
seeable through creation, specific revelation about salvation only comes through the Scriptures. God has revealed salvation to us in the Scriptures, and it must be heard and it must be explained. It's one of the reasons that we have church. It's one of the reasons we gather together. It's one of the reasons we preach and we have our Bible studies because we need to understand it, we need to put it together, and we need to explain it. And friends, you think about this. Um, Today, almost every household in America has a Bible in it. Almost in multiple copies in many cases. But when unsaved people read the Bible, they can't really get it. I'm not talking about uh, their mental ability. I'm talking about their spiritual ability. They don't really understand it on a spiritual level. They may be able to quote parts of the Bible, but they don't really understand what it means. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, he says, But a natural man, that is a person without Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Lost people do not get what God is really saying. It requires two things. It requires explaining the Scripture, and it requires the Holy Spirit giving them the spiritual understanding necessary. You cannot, you cannot omit either of those two elements, the Scriptures and the Spirit working together a person's life. This eunuch was wise when he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? See, the unbelieving world needs someone with spiritual understanding to guide them. They need you. They need me. And God will use us. We'll let him. And finally, saving faith is based on the sacrificial work of the Savior. See, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, anyone who comes to true saving faith must hear the message of Jesus. I am sorry, friends, but your good life lived before the world is not sufficient to bring about salvation in anyone's life. People must hear the gospel, which includes Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, a person must hear the message of Jesus to be saved. Should I say that again or did everybody get that? A person must hear the message of Jesus to be saved. Well, what does it mean in verse 35 when he says, From this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I love that, don't you? He preached Jesus to him. Well, it simply means that he started with the passage in the Scripture where the man was. He started not only where, where it was in the Scripture, but where the man was in his understanding. What, he, what God, what the Spirit was working in his life about. And his question is, I don't understand who he's talking about here. And you see, um, but it doesn't mean that he stayed with just that verse. 
And you see, he preached Jesus to him. He explained all that the prophets and the, said about it, and he put it together for him. He explained it. And there are three things that you must understand if you are to be saved. And the first is this, you are a sinner. Let's back up in Isaiah chapter 53 to verse 5. Look at that verse. I want you to look very closely there. You're a sinner. How do I know? Because he was pierced through for our what? Transgressions. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. The chastening that was due us because of our sin for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, which was due us because of our sin, we are healed. Uh, Let's go on down to the next verse, verse 6. What? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. You're a sinner. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Do you understand? That explains why Jesus was led like a lamb to slaughter. Because we are sinners. We have all gone astray. That is, we've broken God's law and we've all turned to our own way. Instead of doing what God wants us to do, we do what we want to do. That's just simple rebellion. We've all turned away from God. Everybody, all. And you see, that is why Jesus had to die. That's why the Messiah had to suffer. This is the answer to the question that this man is asking. He's explaining it to him. Now look, here's a second thing you need to understand. You need to understand that Christ died for your sins. In verse 7, which is part of this text here, he says, He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And again, look at Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced. You see, he died for your sins. Through, through our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. You see, Christ died for your sins. See, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastened, he was scourged. Why? For our well-being. For our healing. He did that for you and me. We're sinners, but he died for our sin. And you know what he did? We, as sheep, go our own way. But he became the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish, and came and took upon himself our chastisement and our iniquities. And let me say this. If you go back to verse 50, uh, in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says this. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know what he's saying? He's talking about the resurrection. Jesus died for your sin, but the reason that there can be well-being for us is because Jesus overcame sin and death. 
And because in him he is perfect and righteous, he could overcome sin and death. And he is alive even now. And our well-being and our healing are based in his power over death and over sin. Jesus took my sin and went to Calvary. I took his righteousness and I will go to heaven. And then finally, this he says this, you, you must repent of your sin. See, just as you've turned away from God and gone your own way, now you must turn away from going your way and turn to God and go His way. Now, Philip explained to him from the Scriptures what God had done, the plan that God had set in place. And he explained this that because Jesus is the perfect Son of God and absolute righteousness of God and raised Him from the dead, that we can be saved and have eternal life. He even explained to him about baptism. See, in verse 36, it says, As they went along the road, they, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? The very first act of obedience for a believer is to be baptized. If you've not been baptized, you've not been obedient to the Lord. And I'm talking about believer's baptism. I'm not talking about being baptized as a baby. I'm not be talking about being baptized when you didn't even understand what it meant. I'm talking about outwardly professing your faith in Christ. That's the first step of obedience. And verse 37 says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, you may notice in your Bible that that has brackets around it. That's because that verse does not appear in our oldest manuscripts. It was probably added by a scribe at some point. But you know what? There is nothing wrong with the theology in that verse. It's absolutely true because Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God saved him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in the righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And here's what happens. Verse 38 And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Went down into the water. I take that to mean immersion. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Just remind of one last thing here. This Ethiopian was not only professing his faith to Philip, but he was professing his faith to everyone in that caravan, all the people going back to Africa. And we know that Africa was impacted by the gospel in that time, and most scholars believe that this, this man had a major impact on that continent as a result of his salvation. Friends, the faith that saves, it begins with the sovereign work of the Spirit in a person's life. And it continues on as God prepares, uses the submissive will of his servant, and then he directs the seeking heart of the sinner. 
and he, he explains the, the spiritual wisdom of Scripture to us, and he calls us to respond to him, to respond to the sacrificial work of the Savior. Everybody has to make that choice. Let me ask you, what about you? Do you have true saving faith? Is it evident in your life that you have true saving faith? I hope so. If you do have true saving faith, let me encourage you this. Surrender your life. Submit your life to God and let him use you in the life of someone who doesn't have true saving faith. Surrender your life to him. Let him use you. Be intentional. Be set apart for that purpose is life. Follow the Holy Spirit. Let him direct you and look at your life. Be willing to proclaim this truth. Because, friend, remember, it's, it's when people hear the Scripture and it gets explained to them, that's when the Spirit uses that in their lives to draw them to himself. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to speak Jesus, to preach Jesus to people. Let's be a church that does that. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm certain that the Holy Spirit is already working in our lives. And if you have not trusted, if you say, I, I'm not sure I really have true saving faith, then today you can. You can respond to him. You can trust him. You can say, yes, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. And I am willing to turn away from my sin and going my way. And I am willing to turn and do exactly what you tell me to do. If you will do that, you can have true saving faith today. But a friend, that's, that's other than what is on your mind. You have a serious problem. You have a serious problem that you need to deal with. Let's pray.